Welcome to Good Sense, a political education podcast. Hi, I'm Vivek Sony. And I'm Rowan Fortune. With the Good Sense podcast, we'll be addressing different political subjects such as ecology and economics from a broad Marxist perspective and based around reading. We don't assume prior knowledge, so please enjoy. deal is a program of reforms designed to reduce emissions and generate full employment by using the power of the state to direct investment towards renewable energy infrastructure and away from carbon intensive industries. It is currently the most coherently articulated framework for addressing climate breakdown and has the backing of many climate activists and economists. Two of these are Naomi Klein, author of multiple books on climate change, including On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, and the Keynesian economist Anne Pettifor, author of The Case for the Green New Deal. As the names of both books suggest, the authors attempt to bring the Green New Deal to the centre of climate and economic discourse. Though Pettifor argues the economic case for both the necessity and viability of the Green New Deal, while Klein looks at the social forces necessary to address climate disaster, both authors are part of a school of ongoing Keynesian critique of the capitalist system. We're going to look at both books, but more generally discuss a wider critique of the Green New Deal as a potential framework for halting climate breakdown. So what do you think are the main uh, actual policy proposals for the Green New Deal? I, I would say I would argue that the key principles of the Green New Deal are a steady, uh, essentially a steady state economy resting on top of a jobs gap. So by steady state, uh, what, 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 what do you mean? So a steady state economy is zero growth. It doesn't emit more emissions year on year. It doesn't constantly expand into nature and therefore it doesn't exacerbate and in fact even over time uh, withdraws from uh, the situation uh, that leads to climate change, what certain Marxists would call the sure. metabolic rift. And I think the, the basis for this, though, for the advocates of the Green New Deal, because they see, I think to their credit, various unjust mechanisms to get there, would be a set of policies that distribute social goods whilst achieving those objectives. And that's, I think, why the jobs guarantee is so important, and also why other radical proposals like the universal basic uh, services and universal basic income. And the distinction between those two would be that universal basic income is just a set amount into your bank account every month. And then universal basic services, there seem to be very a lot of different um, definitions of what this would entail, but it's uh, the basic... Uh, provisions provided by the state, so things like education, transport, health, and uh, housing, uh, it can vary tremendously, right? It depends on on who's advocating for it, and I think this is a part of the problem with universal basic services, although I, I wouldn't say that universal basic income has no difficulties either. And in fact, the ideas, although they're often contrasted, I don't think are inherently incompatible with each other. There's 
no inherent reason why you couldn't do both other than perhaps the cost of, of each policy. And the advocates of each argue that the costs are offset by the benefits that in the long term, the state actually saves. I'm not entirely persuaded by that, but it, it's, it's a core part of the argument for each one. So if you accepted both arguments, you could easily accept a scenario in which we have both policies. But UBS, yes, is, is incredibly vague because it really depends on what services the particular advocate for UBS regards as essential. And you know, going back to various philosophers, there is a huge argument over whether or not we can define essential human needs in, in any coherent and way. And even with uh, UBI, for instance, that the, the main critique would be uh, if you start putting money into bank accounts, then there's no reason why uh, landlords, for example, can't just start charging more rent. But these are the solutions that you've outlined are very much about addressing demand. Now, this this strikes the heart yes. of um, the Green New Deal itself. And you, you also mentioned that it's a critique of a system that's seen as unjust. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a critique of capitalism. And this is where our... Um, key distinction comes in. It's more a critique of neoliberalism specifically. Yes, I, I really the Green New Deal is a set of Keynesian reforms, which is the system that neoliberalism, in every sense, eclipsed. And its original proponent, John Maynard Keynes, really saw it at least initially. There's some discussion about his later radicalism as a form of managing capitalism in a way that's best conducive to the survival and viability of capitalism in the long run and to resolving particular crises and tensions that he identified in, in terms of, as you put it, demand. I think to get to get to the heart of this, you have to understand Keynesianism itself, which is a macroeconomic theory about how output is influenced by aggregate demand, so that investment is determined by the sum total of demand for commodities in the market. And for people like Pettifor, and I, I imagine Klein as well, the one of the aims of the Green New Deal is to make sure that demand doesn't fall so that the capitalist economy so doesn't in, collapse, whilst at the in, same in time... In the simplest terms, if... The reason for full employment is so that the public has money in their pockets with which they can actually consume the goods that are being produced by uh, capitalism. And if that comes to a grinding halt, uh, then then you have an economic crisis. So that would be the Keynesian uh, outlook in very, very basic terms. So if, if demand falls, then uh, because there is an absence of that, then companies presumably will not invest in the economy and the economy will become uh, stifled and, uh, in Keynes' words, the sort of animal spirits will be absent. Can you expand on that animal spirits? Because I think that's that's an interesting point that's worth expanding on. Yeah, I, I mean, so for Keynes, the um, idea of animal spirits came out of a book called The General Theory of Employment, uh, and I think it's really at the heart of this theory of, of demand that people are motivated by a sense of 
how of uh, how well the economy is doing of how much um of how much room there is to invest in it and so when the economy contracts because people aren't spending because people um don't trust even the uh viability um of of economic futures of of the of the future per se um then investors will be inclined to save and save and save and the entire economy will stall this is basically Keynes' view of the cause of capitalist crisis, that it's about a failure of trust in the market, which can be corrected by the state as a powerful actor and spender. And that's very much what Klein and um, uh, and, and Pettifor believe. But I would also say about Klein and Pettifor that they're interest in full employment probably also does come out of a genuine socialist project as well. I mean, depending upon how you define socialist, not in the sense that we might mean by um, a overcoming of capitalism, but in the sense that Keynesian socialists generally mean by uh, the general social good. And I think it's important to them that they find a way of resolving the current crisis of capitalism and climate in a way that facilitates a general good of at least national populations, but I think in both of their cases, in fact, also international uh, populations. I think there's a there's a sense propelling this project that there's a need for an international justice to underscore it in, in all senses. And so for Pettifor and Klein, and they both actually talk about this explicitly, the cause of uh, a Keynesian set of policies to answer this and their ideological commitments to a fairer, better political economics coalesce together perfectly. Uh, and they don't really see any gap between those moral demands and the immediate pragmatic ones, which I think in itself might sort of draw some level of scepticism when when there's such a, a perfect synthesis of what's needed and what what you believe ought to happen um, at the same instance. But they, they definitely do, and I don't think they make any strong separation. And part of the problem here is a definitional one. So um, we're, we're getting... Uh, some we're getting blur between social democracy and socialism and we're getting a blurring between uh capitalism and neoliberalism and this has been a wider problem on uh the, the western left anyway partly because the framework of well what is what seems possible has become so shifted towards the right that um the discourse has moved towards um, basic social democratic uh, reforms where the state intervenes to provide uh, the basic provisions that people need to live. Uh, and that's been described as socialism, whether it's for rhetorical purposes, which may have been the case under Corbynism in Britain and um, Sandersism in uh, the United States, or whether it's um, potentially an opportunistic thing because uh, socialism is, of course, uh, far more radical sounding than social democracy but to be clear we we're both in agreement that although klein and pettifor would both describe themselves as socialists what they're actually um 
proposing with uh, the Green New Deal. And although there are many different versions of the Green New Deal, all of them seem to have uh, the common themes, uh, the common Keynesian reforms that underpin them, which are at best social democratic reforms and are not about overthrowing capitalism, but about having the system adapt to the current conjuncture in terms of the climate. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yes, and I think it's it's really dependent on a particular history that Klein and Pettifor are advocates of, in which what they call financialization, or at least what Anne Pettifor calls financialization, I'm not sure if Naomi Klein uses the term, it is something that enabled the transition away from what they regard as a historic socialist society in the post-war consensus, or at least in flawed senses, a, a, a form of socialism in their minds. We should probably define both um, how, what that post-Cold War consensus yeah. was, but also uh, how financialization fits in with the o- the overriding sort of ideology of neoliberalism. Yes, I think it would be a good opportunity now to actually introduce neoliberalism as the sort of adversary that they perceive as as the, the main impediment to actualizing the Green New Deal and also what they're trying to reverse because it is very much reversing a set of policies that came out of the early to mid-1970s, starting with the Chilean coup, although arguably with certain ideas that go much further back, um, and with the takeover of Britain and the US by Thatcher and Reagan, introducing a sort of new consensus of deregulation. So the ideological underpinning came earlier through the Austrian school uh, in terms of uh, a, a complete faith in markets uh, where crises would, like the explanation of crises would be interference with market forces. Uh, and so the main Austrian critique was that the state must not interfere with the operation of the markets, uh, whereas uh, neoliberalism saw quite, quite the reverse Yes, neoliberalism actually encourages the state to act as an intermediary between workers and capital quite frequently uh, and necessarily must do to function. Neoliberalism doesn't really represent a retreat of the state as both it and most of its enemies, including, I would imagine, the books we're discussing right now, the authors of those books would probably agree with this, uh, retrenchment of the state. The neoliberal school actually expands the state, arguably, in all kinds of different directions, whilst retreating in certain specific instances, mostly in terms of the state's provision of social goods. And in particular, the provision of those social goods only and directly through the state. So sometimes, as we find through so-called third-way schools like Blairism, the state will still guarantee certain social goods, but will do so through initiatives that combine both the private sector and the public sector so that the private sector, with certain guarantees from the state to the citizenry, will still be earning a profit from those uh, those provisions. But the, the main aim is the functioning of the capitalist economy without crises, which is actually slightly different to what the Austrian school economists envisaged, where they saw the cut and thrust of the market 
as a fantastic, almost Darwinian survival of the fittest approach to economics, where the weaker companies would be gotten rid of. And over time, we would see increasing improvements in terms of the free market providing for people innovations and fantastic abundances. And neoliberalism takes that core idea and um, in some ways it's it's a more more of an ideological project than the Austrian school because it's it, it doesn't just um, war- it, it, it doesn't it's not just an economic analysis. It's also um, there's there's a um, a coherent movement towards uh, the shifting power from workers to capital. Uh, for example, uh, this was most clearly demonstrated in Britain, at least, with um, the uh, the very successful attacks on the unions. Um, and we see we still see the legacy of that, where union membership and strike activity are through the floor in this country, um, despite having recently had um, sort of a small resurgence through Corbynism. And then you have, I, th- I think this was the point you were just making, you had the bailouts following the 2008 um global financial crisis which uh the austrian which i the advocates of the austrian school would have thought was heresy because ultimately you should be allowed to fail uh rather than the too big to fail narrative that was uh constantly peddled at the time and the political advocates of austrian school economics people like uh paul um Oh, uh, yesterday, very much yesterday's politician, Ron, Ron Paul. Paul. No, yeah, Ron, Ron Paul. Paul. Yes, it's Ron Paul. You're right. I'm getting the name wrong way around. But Ron Paul would have called this crony capitalism. That's the term they like to use. I think that there's inherent problems. The Austrian school's understanding of how capitalism functions in that really, by their definition, all capitalism for all of history has been crony capitalism. All capitalism has depended upon state power. And the idea of running a pure Austrian economy is, is really hard to envisage and probably wouldn't last very long before the vestiges of the state or some new state body were created by the capitalist class in order to assure the functioning of capital and assure that capital has uh, a heightened power over the power of labour, as the state is an incredibly effective actor at achieving those goals. But yes, the Austrian school economics would argue that there really is no contrast in the interests between workers and the capitalist class. And in that sense, would argue that there really is no class distinction there. It's just some people are successful because they're industrious and lucky and all kinds of other things, and other people aren't. The neoliberal school, because it is, I think, and I'd agree with you in this, uh, a more ideological, or a more coherently ideological uh, uh, set of proposals. The Austrian school economists had various different articulations of what they wanted in terms of the ideology. Some of them were outright reactionaries, uh, and others were more traditionally libertarian. Um, Some of them sort of saw libertarianism, as indeed did uh, Ron Paul, as a means to increase the power of socially conservative institutions like the church. And 
that that would sort of step in. And it's quite a weird argument, really, that the church would step in as a provider of what is essentially a system of benefits, whilst at the same time arguing that the state system of benefits has all of these negative influences on society. But that's a sort of different story. But yes, the Austrian school economists were much more varied and largely, although they provided a lot of the inspiration behind neoliberalism and were actually advising in certain instances the Chilean coup and and Pinochet and how that actually materialised, they were increasingly sidelined. And I, I don't really believe that Margaret Thatcher especially really understood their arguments and was much more influenced by the needs of capitalism at that moment. But neoliberalism has since become hegemonic to the point where even most social democratic parties have in some form, as I alluded to earlier in the instance of Blairism, assumed neoliberal policies under various guises as... as and we saw this in the reaction to the global financial crisis, where, as I mentioned earlier, you had um, large, um, like you had uh, an influx of funding to uh, failing corporations, whilst on the flip side, to account for paying for, for these large bailouts, uh, the burden was shifted onto the work onto workers uh, through, uh, especially in Britain, you had the decade of austerity uh, from the Tory party. Uh, so this is this is an ongoing legacy, and there was a, a very tangible reaction to this, which is probably what Corb- part of the reason, uh, part of what Corbynism was born out of, uh, a sense of injustice that you mentioned um, at the top of this podcast, and it's that sense of injustice which is part of what both Klein and uh, Pettifor are responding to, that we can have a more just, fairer system. It's just uh, what they would call socialism is actually just a a uh, set of keynesian reforms to redistribute wealth um from the uh highest earners and the high uh, the people with the greatest wealth uh to uh more sets of ordinary workers but this we're very much discussing this in sort of a national context uh so um we have various issues with the Green New Deal and one of them is when you start taking you start looking beyond uh, the national border and looking at how the Green New Deal would what a green a global Green New Deal would look like and specifically what it would look like for the global south. Yes I think that the that the international dimensions of the Green New Deal which to be fair to Petafor and Klein they do discuss are much more difficult for them to address because they think in terms of, especially Klein, um, who discusses social formations a lot more than Petifor, thinks largely in terms of seizing states, which is necessarily going to limit things to the national level. Now, both authors, I do believe, prioritise the need for a globally just Green New Deal, but they become very vague and I think for quite obvious reasons, on the specifics of that. And I would argue that the main reason for that is that it is hard to envisage how you accomplish this in a way that does justice both to 
the fact that the global south has contributed significantly less to climate change historically and will obviously bear the brunt in terms of already being underdeveloped and a need to reduce carbon emissions of I think maybe at this point we need to mention specifically what what the policies within the Green New Deal that would reduce emissions would be. So um, a lot of it is reliance on um, renewable technologies. Uh, and their key, uh, an important point here is that lots of these technologies require rare earth minerals, which are mostly extracted from the global south. So, for example, cobalt demand, cobalt which is used in solar batteries, is set to, uh, the demand for cobalt is set to increase by, is set to be 423% of existing reserves by 2050. Although both authors talk about this just Green New Deal, where I'm not sure if either author mentions it, but there has been talk from other advocates of Green New Deal when they're talking about climate justice, about reparations for uh, countries of the global south that are victims um, that have been uh, suffered from colonialism. But at the same time, the mechanism by which this actually occurs is very unclear. So if we're if if the state is providing subsidies for these um, renewable technologies or even actually taking development of these technologies in-house, these rare earth minerals are still going to be required. And uh, within a capitalist market system is still going to be a, the, an emphasis on exploitation because this is how the system works. And so, as you said, the idea of a just Green New Deal seems very vague. Yeah, absolutely. I I would argue that they s- largely sidestep the issue of how you would introduce global, and it would have to be global, regulations on the behaviour of corporations regarding global South countries in the extraction of these rare earth minerals in a way that both is economically viable and achieves the objective of creating this enormous capacity of renewables. There's another author that we read in the course of researching for this podcast who I think presents a whole smattering of different issues. His book is incredibly eclectic, called Ted Reese. He's part of a group that are strong advocates for growing hemp, which is an idea that gets a lot of mockery. However, I do have some level of sympathy for where this impulse comes from, because it is precisely in in relation to this question of extractivism, in this relation of finding a way of producing a viable mechanism for the world to reproduce itself, socially reproduce itself under any system that avoids really some form of neocolonialism. And I think this is a this is an enormous problem for Green New Deal advocates who don't want to go down a more eco-fascist path of just finding any means by which to rectify the metabolic rift, or at least a specific proportion of the metabolic rift, as eco-fascists often are quite blinkered in their concerns, um, uh, without engaging in new forms of, of global injustice. And it does seem to be an, an, a problem that 
most Green New Deals, certainly the one that was articulated in the Labour Party, but also I think most of the forms of it that have been articulated in the United States as well, have largely just ignored because of the difficulty, because I think it really intersects with an issue that we'll be covering more in the next episode, which is the issue of sovereignty and who actually has the power to really institute policies on a global level and control their their material impacts on people's lives. There's a really good quote from the author of the next book we're looking at, Climate Leviathan. Uh, Jeff Mann and Joel Rainwright wrote that, that human domination is not and cannot be democratic. And really, it's, it's hard to envisage a form of Green New Deal that operates through existing state power that doesn't involve human domination at its core. Do you think that a just Green New Deal is actually possible? Because I, I struggle to even, as do the authors, um, although I don't necessarily think they even attempt to do so, I, I struggle to envision what that would look like. It, there's an element of utopianism about it. In terms of what is and isn't possible, I think that they have prior issues which aren't unrelated to this issue. Um, And that is really how they capture even their national states. I think if they can overcome that issue, I would have a lot more confidence in them being able to overcome subsequent problems like a globally just Green New Deal. Because really, it's in presenting a globally just Green New Deal, one that doesn't prioritise simply the national good of the electoral coalition that they would have to form, that they run into so many problems in that they don't want to appeal to nativist sentiments and that they do want to prioritise not just the union movements in their own respective countries and the needs that they're demanding in terms of lost jobs. And we've recently seen with COVID-19 the lost jobs in aviation and how unable the social democratic left or any left has been to articulate a vision that expresses both the need to move beyond aviation for ecological reasons and the need to protect those jobs at a local level. These are enormous contradictions that really are about that issue of international justice, but really play out far, far sooner than that. And I think in seeing recently the collapse of social democratic movement after social democratic movement, most spectacularly for those of us in Anglosphere countries in the US and the UK with Corbyn and Sanders, we've really seen the difficulty of squaring that particular circle. Their appeal is really limited in terms of nativist workers who really just care about jobs at home, local communities, and other such parochial concerns. Even in the face of the underlying question there would be, what what is the mechanism that facilitates... Um, that under that under capitalism can prevent capital from continuing to extract from the global south. That uh, there is within a capitalist system, there, there is no um, there's no framework for actually enacting that. 
and that's that that would be even if we had um a strong workers movement we would still have capital that would be seeking ultimately seeking profits um in the absence of that workers movement we have as you've touched on um a resurgent far right that could easily pick up on the idea of the green new deal so we had a green new deal proposed in the labor manifesto in two that labor party manifesto in 2019 and it was great to see it in there it was great to see climate actually in a manifesto but it was still when it came to the actual election run-in it was the, the climate was so low on the agenda now at some point for capital it is going to be necessary to address some elements of climate breakdown when it becomes profitable to do so and this is where you can see the far right really taking advantage of the, the advantage of the situation and you can see ecofascism already uh, on the rise um whether it's through and as social democratic reforms are very ripe to be taken advantage of in that way so you can have government spending that encourages it, it, the focus is on on the national level so we will look after you and part of that falls into a very anti-immigrant sentiment which we're seeing both in britain we're seeing it in the united states in fact we're seeing it across the western world where there's very much a, a drawing up of um the borders because it's about um the focus is entirely on citizenry and anyone who's excluded from that um, is completely demonised. And if if you look at the point it's got in this country where we are having citizens' militias uh, attempting to chase immigrants off the border, you can see how a unjust version of the Green New Deal could easily be co-opted by the far right. Absolutely. I think a lot of this really comes down to our broader views on the nature of the current crisis, not in terms of ecology, although not unconnected, but in terms of the economy. So what Marxists will argue, or especially Marxist humanists, council communists, and certain other traditions, is that there is a secular trend in which profits decline in the long term in capitalism, that this could be renewed by the destruction of capital because it creates a lot of cheap assets that can be bought up. After the Second World War, for example, we saw an enormous destruction of capital, which created a ripe climate for this kind of green, this kind of New Dealism approach, which is of course New Deal 1.0. And if that's the case, then it isn't really a fallen aggregate demand that fuels the current crisis. And in fact, people of our persuasion have argued, I would argue, I would say people like, for example, Andrew Kleinman um, and Michael Roberts, that capitalists are quite capable of fulfilling demand themselves. Corporations buy up an extraordinary amount of commodities and can maybe do that with each other. But that if value comes from labour, as we would argue, and if there is a decline in the input of labour because of automation, and if that fuels long-term profitability decline, 
then in the long run, there's less and less of an incentive for anybody to invest because there's just less potential to make any kind of profit. And I would argue that this is the problem that eco-fascists face alongside their social democratic rivals, although I definitely agree that they have a lot less contradictions in terms of their relationship to the nation state in that they can prevent in that they can present a, a straightforwardly selfish vision to people at the local level with local concerns who are atomized from any kind of sense of global solidarity or even if not any sense of global solidarity certainly sufficient social solidarity that they are willing to significantly reduce the quality of their own lives for the sake of people that they don't know and are in vastly different social contexts to them. And really the problem for the eco-fascists is then the same problem minus other problems as the problem for people like Naomi Klein and Anne Pettifor, which is that they don't really have an answer to the capitalist crisis. They can't really encourage investment in the long run. They can do all kinds of things that hide the problem, but exacerbate it. They can pump more and more money into the economy so that the crash, when it eventually comes, is larger. And that's really a problem for all of us because their ability to ignore and exacerbate the crisis whilst appealing to a huge electoral coalition means that they can really take us into the worst of all possible crises, where the economic crisis and the climate crisis really are allowed to unfold whilst being concealed by the ideology of the far right to a point at which we either face a breakdown of modern productive capacity or in the minds of some people, and it seems outrageous, but there are certainly sensible people who believe it's possible, species extinction in in, in the worst ecological situations. Um, and in in the face of that, there, there is a real need for a more serious set of proposals, but they're very thin on the ground right now. Uh, we've been really quite critical of the Green New Deal, uh, but I think you've just hit on one of the key reasons it is the most popular left answer to climate change, and that is because it is a fairly well-articulated set of proposals compared to... Um, I mean, there isn't really uh, anything else that has nearly as much traction uh, coming out of the left or even uh, from the centre ground. Uh, and so whilst we are critical for the reasons we've um, articulated through the last half an hour or so, the the problem the left faces is that this isn't, there is no alternative necessarily better solution that's more viable. Now that's not saying this is the only solution because we've actually um, discussed several reasons why uh, certainly the idea of a just Green New Deal may not be viable either. But there has been possibly a lack of imagination on the left to uh, come up with alternatives. Now, the next book we're going to look at does discuss various social formations that will be that are currently battling it out um, in terms of how to address climate change. Um, but 
there are there is much to be said for the Green New Deal in terms of if we are having to act through the state, then there are some ready to go proposals that have the potential to at least um, redirect, um, like to centre an argument around cli- the climate rather than just focusing. Uh, as 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 we've said, the climate is just so far down the agenda uh, in most uh, Western countries when it comes to uh, electoral politics. Absolutely. And that's the case even with many social movements that have in flawed ways, in ways that I sometimes think come for both fair and undue criticism and also unbalanced criticism, but nonetheless there are good points of criticism, but nonetheless have highlighted this issue. The obvious example is Extinction Rebellion, which has, I think, to a large extent, made this issue an agenda whatsoever. I strongly doubt that it would have played as much in the Labour Party and in these social democratic movements without that undercurrent backing it up. And there are definitely all kinds of problems, I think, that they sometimes endorse eco-fascist logics, if not outright get co-opted by eco-fascism. They, for example, will resort to Malthusian views about climate change, that the essential problem is that there are too many people uh, rather and it's not just Extinction Rebellion. We have several prominent climate activists, for example, um, Jane Goodall, uh, David Attenborough, who espouse uh, this same Malthusian idea that um, overpopulation is one of the main drivers of climate breakdown, despite this having been debunked a long time ago. Absolutely. It's uh, an argument that Marx himself in fact, although not obviously in relation to ecology, but in relation to the sustainability of populations, I would argue conclusively destroys uh, as, as, a, as a viable line of reasoning. And I think that might take us a bit too far away from our, our subject. But in brief, Malthus predicts a whole range of things that just didn't ha- happen. They just didn't occur. Uh, and are absolutely fundamental to his theories, truth claims. But really, this movement, despite its shortcomings, and I think its shortcomings are largely to do with the absence of the left from within those movements, the fact that those movements, which formed, and I think in, say, a 1970s context, would have immediately been filled with people from left theoretical backgrounds, were rather left as entirely mainstream liberal movements and that allowed them to be either co-opted or left them with very little articulate ideas with which to express their central and good demands. And so it is understandable that they reached for the more reactionary ideas that were just ready to hand in the wider culture. And, and you can see that Malthusianism is definitely ready to hand fight how frequently it's a just a, a go-to explanation for the motivations of quote-unquote ambiguous villains in Hollywood movies. It's it's such a, a strong current um, and therefore I don't think it, it is at all unexpected that it would take over in those movements and, and in a way. And I think 
sorry, I just think uh, Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright, who will uh, be discussing next week, uh, Climate Leviathan, they're very good at discussing the scale of climate change and how it's not something that part of the issue is it is very difficult to wrap one's head around the enormity of uh, the, the scale of the problem. Then there is an issue of the temporal aspect in terms of climate change is it, we we talk about it as if it, we still talk about it as if it's something that is going to happen in the future that we are trying to stop 22 uh, degrees by 2030 for example uh, whereas uh, the climate breakdown is happening right now and is affecting people across the globe right now and it's these ideas that have been just as effective at um, redirecting the left's attention as it has at redirecting liberal attention. Uh, when there are more immediate concerns, for example, homelessness, the lack of uh, jobs and a whole host of issues uh, that tend to capture the left's focus. Um, and partly because this is what is capturing the public's focus. And to to actually get around that has been a problem because whilst it might be happening now it's still happening out there it's happening um to other people and this again plays into that uh very nationalist narrative yes i'd agree with that completely the the arguments that capture people's imaginations are ones that don't always just affect them i think the cynical reading of people as misanthropic and selfish can be exaggerated a lot. It's the homeless people they pass in the street. It's the schools that they see dilapidating. It's those kinds of issues that really inspire people's immediate moral imagination. And in that respect, I think Klein's book is quite good. It paints a very vivid picture of the harms that this does, of the future horrors that it will unleash, and it does it in a way that really avoids, uh, admirably avoids, disempowering people's sense of their capacity to change the future, of their own historical agency. Uh, in a way, I think it's a shame that this ultimately finds its, its recourse in seizing state power and entrusting no matter how you put it, technocrats, maybe charismatic, likeable, popular technocrats, but still nonetheless technocrats, to do the work on our behalf. And what we really need, especially to answer the problem as, as I and you would articulate it, and to be fair to Petifor, she would flatly disagree with my characterization of the crisis. She would say that I am wrong empirically, and there's an argument to be had there that's outside of our current scope but yeah these aren't we don't we just, we don't think the either author or many people working on the green new deal are bad faith actors just to clarify absolutely and i think that really um there is a need for a moral vision maybe moral is the wrong word it, it sort of gets a very bad rep amongst marxists uh, I think in a slightly flawed way, but that's a slightly different discussion. But a, a, a vision that empowers people, that gives them not just a sense that we need to get X, Y, and Z elected, but the sense that we need to change society and history, that we build society, that we are the people who actually are the authors of society, and therefore we can refashion it and remake it. And that kind of vision 
which in many ways is a traditional Marxist vision, is noticeably absent from engagements with ecology uh, at a time when it's it's most required. I mean, so some of this is something we will talk about on the next episode where um, we keep talking about Climate Leviathan because it is an excellent book. Um, but they, uh, the authors, don't just talk about uh, the Green New Deal and specifics policy in terms of policy, but as in how the Green New Deal as a social formation is realised. Uh, so we will we will pick up on that there. Any um, last thoughts? Uh, like I said, I think we, we, whilst we've been quite critical of the Green New Deal, that's because it has largely been there's there's been an absence of critique um, of the Green New Deal framework. There's been uh, some good work by people like Angela Metropolis and uh, War on Want, but uh, generally uh, the discourse is very much directed towards the Green New Deal being the only solution. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in terms of my final thoughts, in, in terms of those people who are either in social democratic parties or in movements that are pushing this, but have a more radical vision, the key is to push those elements of global justice so that we can really start to articulate where these flaws are and how to surpass them. I wouldn't tell anybody who's currently working on advocating for global uh, for green new deal policies to stop doing that i think that it's important that these arguments are stressed in every context and so that they're raised on the agenda and even within the admittedly quite pitiful scope of electoralist politics there is a much greater room for advocating things like international social solidarity than we would be led to expect by a lot of popular discourse and by the gravitational pull of the right on society. Yes, and even in terms of just the the articulation by both authors that the Green New Deal should be a international project focused on climate justice, though we've uh, extensively shown how that may that's likely to not be a realistic proposition just by actually uh, focusing on that um in itself is likely or hopefully is able to shift um the conversation to uh, a more international level so um yeah let's leave it there and we can pick up uh, next time with uh, climate leviathan by jeff mann and joel Wainwright. cheers Thank you for listening to Good Sense. You can find us on Twitter at Pod Good Sense.